Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn movie related show on the planet Earth, the John Campus Show, coming from right here on my YouTube channel. I am, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies, movie news, TV, and streaming, and all sorts of good stuff, and sitting right over here, ladies and gentlemen, especially appropriate for today, he is our resident Moon Knight aficionado, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Robert, how are you doing today, sir? John, it's a good day. Today, we honor Dr. Martin Luther King, who had one of the great quotes of all time where he said he had a dream that one day his four little children will live in a world where one day they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Mm -hmm. when, I was in, um, when I was in Bible college, uh, my roommate and I there, we literally had like about four posters of uh, Dr. King's quotes. He, I mean, he had loaded with them. And, and oh, stuff. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sitting right over here, of course, he's going to be joining you guys in the live chat here today for you guys chatting it up. It's Ray Ora. Ray, how hey, you doing? Hey, 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 hey. Shout out to Cincinnati five-star oh, barber. Right. Uh, I forgot to uh, get your video up, but yeah. Yep. We did it. Finally. <laughs> they can lose now. It's over. It was, it was funny because the uh, Cincinnati five-star barber, the Cincinnati Bengals barber, he, he writes into the show a lot to watch, and he actually sent Ray live video at the game as Ray for the first time in what 30 years 30 years got to see the Cincinnati Bengals win a playoff oh, game well I watched the New England Patriots get their asses completely handed we to them. love it when that happens and Rob <laughs> Rob watching the Seattle Sea oh no there were no Seattle oh. Seattle games that's right they weren't in the playoffs I forgot about that I mean, but hey, we can all agree it was great watching the Cowboys get beat yesterday. That was true. Any, that, that was when the Cowboys, the 49ers, <laughs> or the Patriots get beat, it's always a good day. It's a good day. Always it's a good, good day. day. Anyway, guys, it is a good day to have you here joining us today. And here's how today's show is going to go. We break the show down into two parts. In the first half of the show, we take some predetermined topics. In the second half of the show, we take your live comments and questions. Now, how do you get a live comment or question on the show? Well, most of the time we do it in two ways. We do the super chats, but because on the last show we did, we didn't we did only super chats and we didn't have any time for any of the tip questions. Today we're going to do all tip questions. If you want to send in a tip question to be right on the show or in an upcoming companion video, simply go down to the description of this video and you'll see a tip link. Click on that there or enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com/movieblogtv/tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on a show if we deem your comment or question appropriate to be used on the show. And of course, you'll be supporting the channel at the same time and all of us involved with the John Campia Show. Thank you guys so very much for your support. Now listen guys, before we go into our first off the top here today, there is some bad news and some good news that I do want to share with everybody. For those of you who've been following along on the YouTube channel, we announced in the com in the uh, com <laughs> commentary in the community uh, area of our YouTube channel the other day that um, you know, uh, Kimberly Ann Curran, who's been with us for about eight months off and on, uh, is no longer going to be with the channel and we wish her the very best and thank you for all the great contributions that she has made to the channel moving forward. Now, when you have somebody as unique and as gifted as Kimberly doing the show for that long, you can't just get anybody to come in and fill that role afterwards. And if you know anything about me, you know that I absolutely hate, hate, hate the casting and the hiring process. I hate it. And it makes it even more difficult when you have somebody as gift, gifted as Kimberly, you got to try to fill that chair. So I, the very first call that I made was to our very own Chris Carr. 
And uh, Chris Carr and I spoke this weekend. She then came out and we sat down. We discussed everything. We looked at her schedule and stuff like that. And I am thrilled to announce that the Soup Goop Quotin, the <laughs> No Pants Thursdays creating, the one who coined the infamous phrase, villains in movies are like orgasms, the more the better. Chris Carr, our resident geek culture and anime expert, uh, is coming back to the show, and we're really excited to have her back, and we're so grateful. I mean, I, the only reason she wasn't on the show anymore is because COVID happened, and she we weren't able to do things inside. She wasn't able to stream in like Rob was able to for that period of time. We tried a few times, didn't work, and we were never able to make the schedules work. Now we could, and we're super thrilled that she's coming back. However, she's not coming back till next week. So that meant we're going to be kind of short-handed this week. Now, Erin Cummings, of course, has been taking a break because her and Tom have welcomed their baby and uh, she needed some time to take a break for the baby. And she's been filming that Nathan Fillion show, The Rookie. So we're super excited for, for that. So she was going to be coming back fairly soon anyway. But I gave Erin a call and I said, look, we're going to be shorthanded this week. Would you be willing to come in this week and, and fill in this week? So, yes, Erin Cummings will be on the show every day this week, except for today, because they, she had a pre-standing appointment today. But Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, Erin will be back. And then after that, Erin will be resuming her weekly guest spots on the show. Hopefully we can reinstitute No Pants Thursdays, which we'll be looking forward to a That'll lot. That'll be fun which would be a lot of fun. So yeah, bad news and good news to share today. Uh, but uh, we are very, very excited that both Erin uh, is now on her way back and that we are going to have Chris Carr back. So we're super excited about that. Anyway, guys, with that down, let's get into our topics here today, shall we? And let's start with an off the top. And that is this, you know, I remember back when you could see the tide turning that cable was going to become a thing of the past eventually. And a lot of people like me, I became a cord cutter like 10 years ago. Like 10 years ago, I became a cord, cord, cord cutter. And I remember the time, you know, one of the big things to me was that it's so less expensive than trying to subscribe to cable. Because you got to subscribe to these tiers and you get 50 channels that you never even watch and don't want and it's so expensive. And I remember, Rob, people telling me at the time, um... You wait, eventually this streaming thing, it's going to be more expensive than cable. And I said, no, you're just salty. You're just salty that, you know, that cable TV is going away. That's all. You're just salty saying this. It's always going to be cheaper. Well, guess what? Rob, I remember you and I did a show about six months ago where we cracked out the, the spreadsheet and we tallied it up. And it's yep. like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Streaming is more expensive than cable ever was. I mean, streaming is still better because of the types of programming we get, but it is more expensive now. And it only continues to get more expensive as Netflix guys has now announced that they are raising their prices to the point now that they are now going to officially be the most expensive streaming service. Now, keep in mind, it's still going to be around 15 to 16 bucks. Sure. Which when you consider the amount of content you get on Netflix... That's still a good value. But anyway, this comes from some of the folks over at uh, Screen Rent who write the following. Uh, let me see if I can find out where exactly it is. Here we go. The price hikes, here we are, uh, will once again see Netflix become the most expensive streaming platform. As reported by TV Line, the new pricing strategy will see the top tier uh, for U.S. subscribers priced at 15 to, uh, or $15 per month, and 49 cents per month, putting it just above HBO Max's $15. 
The changes will be rolled out across the coming weeks, and it is believed that subscribers will be notified 30 days in advance. Ray, you and I were just talking about that beforehand uh, via email. And uh, though notifications and through notifications on the Netflix app, uh, read the comments below from a Netflix rep concerning the price updates. This is unfortunate, but it in no way should be considered surprising. Guys, here's the reality. We, we, Rob, you point this out all the time. Right now, the big streaming services all operate in a deficit. Yep. They all are losing money. Netflix loses billions per year. Uh, Disney Plus right now is losing billions per year. Now, they understood that that would be the case. It's not a surprise. It's part of the long-term strategy. Ah, they write it off. Yeah, and they write it off. But that's a lot to write off. <laughs> that is an awful lot to write off. But... You know, we should not be surprised because we said on this show for a long time, guys, yeah, okay, $7. Or what, what did Disney Plus start at again? $5 a month? Six ninety nine, I think, or something like that. Or it's four, gone four, up four to $6.99, but like it's that. gone up a couple of times. They've yeah. raised the price on that a couple of times. It's going to be raised a lot more because that's just how they get you in. And Netflix is going to continue to increase prices because they got to pay for all this content that they're making. Because remember, one of the big differences between streaming content and traditional cable is that on traditional cable the more people that watched something the more money the networks made that's not how it works in streaming right it, it if, if if they don't care if 10 billion people watch some well if they had 10 billion subscribers that would be good but i mean if they don't care how many people watch a particular piece of content what they care about is the number of subscribers they have and does new content add new subscribers and stuff like that obviously having popular stuff on is good for your service but it's not the same and so this should come as no surprise. And Rob, I'm going to tell you, I believe by the end, within two more years, by the end of 2024, I believe the, the standard Netflix, when I say standard, I mean the one most of us have, it'll be over $20. And it's only going to go up. I think Disney's going to hit $15 within the next couple of years. And it's just going to continue to go up. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because they do offer a lot of content, but we're not going to be in this you know, utopia where we get all this content for so little, the prices are going to go up. Rob, you heard about this price raise. What do you think? Well, it's ine inevitable. I was telling you, I think on this show that I talked to a producer friend of mine who's very wise and understands the business better than I do. It was explaining that they're spending 100 to 150%, 50% over what they're taking in on content, that most of the streamers are doing that. That's a lot of money. And also the production companies that are making all of this material are counting on Netflix or Disney Plus or whomever to continue paying that money. But it's like a game of musical chairs. Eventually, these companies are gonna have to show a profit. And this producer friend of mine said, they wanna get it down to say 35 to 50% of their subscription money coming in. That's a huge cutback in terms of what they're spending now on content. And I think it only makes sense. I mean, right now, John, there's only so many people in the world that can subscribe to streaming services i mean it's not like you know we, we have this mentality that well we have to make sure our shareholders get more money every single fiscal quarter well eventually that's just going to end you know and it's going to end in a way that is not going to be uh i think conducive to everybody who's currently making a lot of money but right now the viewers are winning we're getting a lot of great content netflix is also acquiring i mean i heard what do they pay for squid game something in the early or like in the 20 early 20 millions not early. What do you call that? The low, the low 20 millions, <laughs> the low 20 millions. And look at how many people watch that show. 
Now, I don't know how many people subscribed to Netflix because of Squid Game, but it was a huge global phenomenon. Yeah. And that's the kind of show that they want. Not a lot of money spent comparative to the amount of people. Now, I don't know how many new subscribers that show in particular brought in, but that's what they want. And it's it's a crazy time, but those days are going to end. You know, it, it makes me wonder if because Peacock and I think I think now Hulu, not Hulu, uh, I think uh, what well, we always Hulu always has, but Peacock and I believe HBO Max, I think HBO Max has a new tier where there's some ads uh, like they have the nine ninety nine a month one. But oh. we know Peacock has three different levels. I can't help but wonder if at some point we're going to see all the streamers. Somebody asked me a little while ago, do I think we'll ever see Netflix introduce commercials on like a special tier? And I said, no way, no way. I'm not so sure about that anymore because if they did have a tier, like let's say you can pay your $15.50 a month or you could pay $10 a month and have one or two ads per program. That way, the more people that watch a program, Netflix does make more money and it gives you a, it gives you a choice. Two weeks ago, I said no fucking way that would happen. I'm not so sure that's true. I think there could, Rob, do you think there could be coming a time here where these streaming services are going to be looking for multiple ways to monetize and maybe offering viewers a lower price thing with ads? Do you think that could be coming? I guarantee there's going to be something like that. I've even noticed on a lot of the YouTube shows I watch, there's more ads being placed in standard YouTube videos than ever before. Like even on my own show, I try and place ads every 30 minutes, but why not? I mean, they need the revenue stream. And at the end of the day, they're going to eventually run out of people to subscribe to their channels. I don't know if Netflix will tap out at like, or or cap it the 500 million subscribers paying 15. Can you imagine 500 million subscribers paying 15 bucks a month? That is some serious cash flow to make stuff, but eventually they're going to want more. And how do you get more? You, you sell ads. So I can definitely see that happening. Uh, by the way, so I just put up a poll for those of you guys watching live because I'm curious to know what you guys think about this. Would you be willing to take a less expensive tier for a streaming service that had ads? Now, we already got Peacock that has like three different tiers. Netflix already technically has different tiers. But I mean, to get the main tier that you want at a cheaper price but it showed some ads. Would you guys be willing to do that? I, I'm not quite sure. As I just put up the poll. We've got 500 people have responded already. I'm surprised. It's almost split. Like I thought it'd be like 90% no, but right now we got 48% of people of you guys are saying we're getting close to 700 votes now. Now 49% of you guys are saying, yes, I would be willing to watch as long as it's a couple of ads. Yeah, yeah. Like not like every five minutes, but like a couple of ads. 49% of you guys are saying we're now over 800 votes. 49% of you guys are saying, yes, you would be willing to take a lower price tier with ads. Now it's 50-50. Now we're at 900 votes, 50-50. You guys are saying, yes, no, I'm surprised. I thought it'd be less than that. Anyway, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this whole thing about Netflix now raising the prices? We're going to see this happen a lot more, I believe, in the coming days. How do you guys feel about it? Still feel like it's a really, really good value? Are you starting to think it's getting a little bit too expensive? Whatever you guys are thinking, jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's get into our main topics here today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campion Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. 
Whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you guys feel we need to cover as a main topic here on the show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's absolutely free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Philip McCone, who writes, Hey, John and team. Uh, I Hey, John team. I couldn't believe it when I saw that Scream actually beat out Spider-Man at the box office this weekend. I think it beat a lot of expectations. What, what did you think of it making 30 million? And how long do you think it can hold the number one spot? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, this is actually, I believe, quite impressive. Now, you guys know that I have not been excited for Scream at all. Like, not in the least. I don't care about this franchise. I like the first one, just like everybody else did. Uh, I didn't love it as much as most people, but I like the first Scream. I, I've not liked any of the rest of them. I don't really think many people care about it, to be honest with you. But Ray and I went to go see it, and... Ray made one of the most interesting statements I've ever heard coming out of the movie. He said, and I'm going to quote, correct me if I'm quoting you wrong here, Ray. He said, this movie pissed me off, but it was fun. I had a good time. Like, that's basically <laughs> oh, it. I just said that the movie pissed me off so much, but I like it. I don't know how that makes sense, <laughs> but that's what I felt. I mean, I wasn't mad when I left the movie. I was actually really happy. But yeah. during the movie, I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, there's a point in the movie where I have uh, like since I have a big face I have a big face mask I put my face mask over my eyes and <laughs> cross true. my arms I was just true. like oh my I can attest to that he oh did that. my gosh <laughs> everything that pisses you off about those movies will come at you and you just have to handle them but, but you yeah. had but at the by the time it was done you were like yeah you had fun yeah I think everyone should see it I would actually recommend it and I was shocked coming out going, you know what? I mean, I don't think it was great. It, it had a couple of big flaws to me. But you know what? Overall, I came out with a smile on my face. I enjoyed it. I had fun. And I was really surprised about that. And there was a good crowd. I mean, it's not like all the theaters were packed, but there was a good crowd. And yeah, now word has come out that Scream has made. It's taken over the number one spot at the box office. Spider-Man No Way Home has been dethroned by Ghostface. Ghostface made $30.6 million in its opening weekend. $35 million if you count the extra fourth day for the long, for the long holiday. But its official opening weekend number, $30.6 million. Being good enough to take over the top spot. Listen, this is significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, because this is almost as much money. Scream has already made more money than the last Scream movie did in its entire theatrical run. Let me say that again. This Scream movie has already made more money at the box office than the last Scream movie made in its entire theatrical run. Now, I don't want to overemphasize it because if we if this was 2021 right now, Scream would be the number 14 biggest box office opening movie. So, I mean, so let's not pretend like it's one of the best things that's happened. It would be number 14. But still, I think this is much better than I thought it was going to be. And I think it's more than a lot of people thought it was going to be. And I think this is a really impressive thing. And I'll tell you what else. The movie theaters 
have been waiting for a new movie to come along other than Spider-Man that was going to show it can get some traction with the audience and get some people into the theaters. And I know they're very, very happy about that. So yeah, Rob, let me ask you this. Number one, <laughs> what do you think about the $30 million result? Is this something they should feel good about, not good about? Are you surprised about the number came out? What are you thinking? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. And, um, I'm happy that the movie is successful. We've seen, you know, these franchises that have been around for a while. I mean, Halloween's been around for a lot longer than Scream. But these these franchises, horror franchises, are things that they're perennials on cable. They're perennials on physical media. They're perennials on streaming. And people watch these things and develop. It's almost like comfort food. You know, they've, they've got multi-generations of people that have been watching these things for literally decades. And as movies, as they keep adding more sequels they brought back a lot of you know the original cast again <laughs> and sydney uh sydney and um it's <laughs> it's great to see uh this kind of success and you know the guys who made um ready or not are great i thought they were great directors i love ready or not i thought it was a great choice to bring them on to this franchise hopefully it will catapult them into the ranks of They'll get an A-list big studio project now because of this. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. The movie's good. People like it. It's making money. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, you get somebody like me who I don't understand the huge appeal of Scream. Like, I've watched all the movies. I like the first one. I, I don't like them myself, but it has a very, very loyal fan base. A very loyal fan and a very passionate fan base, too. I, I don't know how big Scream, the franchise as a whole, is to you, but what do you attribute, when you look at this real passionate, loyal following, what is it about these movies that elicit that, that passion and that loyalty to this franchise? I have a theory. I think of all the horror franchises, this Scream franchise, the audience itself see themselves as members of the cast. Meaning that... That's us. Like if we were living in a horror film, if I'm going to high school and there was an actual horror film situation happening in my life, the Scream franchise is the closest that would be to what might happen to me. <laughs> so I think that the audience recognizes that and they see themselves in these characters. And that's why it's so appealing. They're people, you know. And, and the fact that there's this deconstruction, the people in the Scream franchise, unlike other movies where apparently no one has ever seen, like in the Halloween franchise, we know from the first Halloween people do watch horror movies, right. but it's almost like they don't understand their tropes, whereas the Scream franchise is all about horror tropes. And like, we would be smarter if I was ever stuck in a horror film, I would know how to survive because I've seen so many horror movies. That's what the Scream franchise does, is it, it's completely, it takes, the, it's not distancing itself from the audience, it is the audience. And that's why I think that those films have such appeal. Well guys, the question is for you. What do you think about Scream being the movie to dethrone Spider-Man No Way Home at the box office? making as much money as the last film did in its entire theatrical run. Why do you think it appeals to so many people on that level? Whatever you guys are thinking, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets sent to us by Thomas Patterson, who writes, While No Way Home hasn't played in China, 
and is making uh, and is playing in markets with a plethora of restrictions because of COVID, it has become the number four all-time highest-grossing film ever domestically. Among superhero films, it is second only to Endgame now in the U.S. Globally, it is going to pass Jurassic World next week with a total of 1.7 billion. We'll see about that. Uh, virtually assured at this point. Not necessarily. Anyway, this makes it the largest superhero film centered around one character ever. Behind only Infinity War and Endgame, what are your thoughts on this film's success? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, look, we've been talking a lot about Spider-Man No Way Home for for obvious reasons. It has been right. the biggest thing that has happened in the world of movies and movie theaters and movie fandom in years, literally in years. Like, not since... The uh, the rise of Skywalker, uh, the rise of Skywalker opened in 2019. Have we had a movie that was going to be anywhere near this big, and it, it shattered box office expectations? It's been having a huge run. Obviously, just now this movie opened December 17th, so this is a month ago, and just now it's been dethroned at the box office by by Scream. Obviously, it has been huge, and the accolades continue. Because just like they wrote in the email, it has now, as of today, become the number four all-time box office movie domestically ever during a pandemic when there are some places, I mean, not many, but some places where theaters aren't open, certain restrictions in other places, and yet it has done this. To get a sense, let's put this into context here. Take a look at this. These are the biggest domestic films of all time. Number one, and honestly, I feel weird saying this, Rob. It's never going to be cut. Star Wars The Force Awakens is never going to be. I, what I is it, 900 and something? Yeah, million? Star Wars The Force Awakens is at $936 million is the number one all time. Right behind it, well, still a little ways behind it, is Avengers Endgame at $858 million. Behind that is Avatar at $760 million. And now in number four, just passing Black Panther at 700 million, we've got Spider-Man No Way Home at 704 million. And this is where it's going to stay. It's not going to catch Avatar at this point. Um, and I don't, it might get to 1.7 billion worldwide. It may not, whatever. But Rob, I think even the most optimistic of people, the most optimistic people, Going into Spider-Man, a lot of people thought it could make a billion. I don't think there were a lot of people who would have thought under the current circumstances it could get into the top five domestic of all time, let alone pass Black Panther and sit in number four. Which, by the way, that now means three of the top five biggest domestic box office films of all time are all Marvel films. So, so there you go. But still, it's an incredible accomplishment. And the very fact that even now, Rob, under great circumstances, a movie still pulling in 20 million a weekend, which is what Spider-Man made this weekend, a movie pulling in 20 million a month after it opened, that's impressive. And, and I just feel like that's a word we've had to use about Spider-Man No Way Home so many times. Impressive, impressive, impressive. Now, I feel like the, the gas has almost run out. We, we now do see it. It's, it's in its waning days now. It's going to be wrapping up here soon. But it's not going to catch Avatar, and that's fine. We'll see if it catches the dinosaur movie worldwide or not. But, Rob, I think we're going to have to look back on this for years to come 
and reflect on this is a movie that performed that well when no movies could live up to their potential. Like even some movies that have done fairly well, Fast 9 did fairly well at the box office. Uh, a number of other films did fairly well at the box office, but none were able to truly live up to their full potential given the circumstances. I think Spider-Man No Way Home exceeded them. Rob, as you look back now and the way you're going to look back on this movie historically and putting it into context, how impressive is it what it was able to accomplish here and, and how many more legs, how much more legs do you think it has moving forward? Well, I think, look, clearly the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a juggernaut unlike anything we've seen in Hollywood history. Spider-Man is one of the most beloved superhero characters of all time. Uh, we all grew up with him. Everybody grows up with him. I mean, heck, I remember when Spider-Man was on the electric company, you know, <laughs> in the 70s. And Spider-Man is one of those characters that I think we see a, everyone, again, sees part of themselves in that Spider-Man character. And it's he's incredibly popular. And this film, and I hate to say it, but there was a gimmick in this film not just all of the villains. Obviously, I think we could say now that we brought in other iterations, or they brought in other iterations of Spider-Man from different iterations of the character, which is now also never been done before. So there's there's a way that they've made these movies fresh and unique for audiences. And I have to say, John, I think the reason this movie is as successful as it is, is it provided audiences with an experience they don't normally get to the point where people are cheering, literally cheering. Some people standing on their feet and cheering not once, not like when Captain America gets Mjolnir. I mean, there's three or four moments in this movie where where Daredevil, well, Matt Murdock shows up, where two Spider-Men show up, where the villains show up, where if you like these movies... I mean, even I, as an old middle-aged white man with one foot in the grave, I felt like a little kid watching this movie. I was giddy. And it provided an experience at the movie theaters that we don't get a lot of the time, but we're always wishing for. And I think this movie made us a promise, and it delivered, and it delivered 200% of what we expected it might. And it, it just exceeded everything in every way. And now the number four, again, let me, let me bring up this thing again. Look at that. Look at the company that Spider-Man in the midst of a pandemic was able to join. It is, it is past Black Panther. It is up there with Avatar, which is the number one all-time box office movie worldwide. It is up there with Avengers, which is the number two domestic and the number two worldwide all-time. And Star Wars The Force Awakens with a record that I, quite frankly, don't think will ever be broken. I, I, I just can't see that number ever be broken. But at any rate, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this, about Spider-Man No Way Home becoming the number four domestic film of all time? Are you impressed? Are you not impressed? Were you expecting it? Were you surprised? Whatever you guys are feeling, jump on down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's take a second here and pay a couple of bills and thank the sponsor of today's episode of The John Campia Show, our friends at Peloton. We want to take a moment and thank the sponsor of today's video, Peloton. Now, look, guys, it's a brand new year. It's 2022. And if you're like me and a lot of other people, you've probably made some kind of fitness resolutions for the new year, as we often do. But let's face it. It's not always easier, convenient or time efficient to get to the gym. It's easy to become bored and bogged down in the mundane of the same old kind of workout routines. It's hard to get motivated with that. But Peloton has your back. Now, of course, we all know Peloton's bikes, the Peloton tread. You know, Ann and I moved into 
our new house here. And of course, you know that I ordered a Peloton tread because I love my treadmills. But Peloton keeps working out fresh, exciting, and new to keep you motivated in the new year. Because, you know, right now, Peloton is pushing you further with so much new stuff, new classes, new music, new ways to keep you and your workouts fun and motivating at the same time. Now, you guys know me for years. I love just getting on my treadmill. I don't just get on there to jog. I often just get on there to think or do work or do research. I like doing all that. But on top of all that, they have a whole lot of classes that you can do while you're on the equipment at the same time. And listen, going into the new year, they've got a whole bunch of new stuff. For example, they have boxing classes. Peloton is stepping into the ring with you guys with this newest exercise. No gloves needed. You can discover fast, furious, and fun workouts with Peloton instructors right there in your corner on the app. And they're introducing a whole lot more in terms of daily variety in your workouts. Like it's easier to stick to your goals when you keep your workouts interesting. Peloton's got a workout for every goal, every day, and every mood you might be in. De-stress from a long day with a 30-minute strength and 20 minutes of cardio. Do a quick 15 minutes of a total body class before work. Whatever works for you to stay motivated while having fun with bike workouts, yoga, meditation, dance, cardio, whatever it is you need. And right now, for a limited time, try the Peloton app for free for two months. Then it's just $12.99 a month after that. New members only. So visit onepeloton.com slash app to learn more. Now that's two months free at onepeloton, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com slash app. The offer expires on January 31st and terms may apply. And again, we want to thank Peloton for sponsoring this video. All right, guys, and thank you to Peloton for supporting the John Campia show. Once again, guys, go to onepeloton.com slash app and get that deal right now. All right, with that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Steve Calderon. And Steve Calderon writes, hey, everyone, I love Leslie Grace's Batgirl costume that she revealed on her Instagram. It reminds me of it reminds me of Yvonne Craig's Batgirl costume from the old Batman TV series with Adam West. What do you like that the filmmakers chose to go with, or do you like that the filmmakers chose to go with this look for the suit? All right, thanks a lot for saying that in, Steve. And yeah, you know, one of the more interesting movies in development is the Batgirl movie. Mm. And it's been kind of fascinating because I assumed, I think a lot of us assumed that when they announced the Batgirl movie, that it was going to be part of the Robert Pattinson Batman universe. But then we found out that J.K. Simmons was surprising his role as Commissioner Gordon. So it's okay. So this is centered around the, at least the DCU that is going to exist after the Flash movie, I think. So we're going to have to see how that all plays out. One of the other interesting things about this Batgirl movie is that it is going straight to HBO Max. It's not getting a theatrical release. Although, although I have heard whispers, and I'm, I'm not going to make a video out of this or make a title out of this or anything. I'm, I'm just saying I've heard some whispers. I don't know how believable it is that Discovery may usurp that decision once Discovery takes over Warner Brothers and may make Batgirl a theatrical release, I don't know that that's a sh that's actually right. a thing. But so, but for now, let's just go under the thing that's going to go straight to HBO Max. Interesting. I loved the Leslie Grace casting. Loved it. I, I think she's wonderful. I cannot wait to see her in this role. I think it's going to be great. And now 
the first look at the costume has come out. And the costume, here's kind of one of the looks from the pages of the comic books. And the costume is, well, it's pretty much that. It's pretty much that. It's the purple. It's the yellowish gold. I think Leslie, Leslie looks great. I mean, let's face it. You could put Leslie Grace in a, in a garbage bag with a little hole for her head and two holes for her arm. She's going to look great. But I think it looks interesting. I don't know if I like it, though. I don't know if I like it. By the way, did you notice in this picture that there's the shadow of her on the wall, but behind her, it looks like there's another shadow? And I don't know if that's like a Nightwing or a Robin or a thing, or maybe I'm just seeing things. Maybe I'm just seeing things, but it kind of looks a little bit strange to me. I'm going to be honest with you. I know there's going to be a lot of people that are really super happy that this is comic accurate. To me, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm the type of guy that I don't really care what a costume looks like. As long as I can look at the character and go, oh, that's Wolverine, or oh, that's Deadpool, or oh, that's Black Lightning. As long as I can look at it and identify who it is, I'm fine. I don't think the, you know, I, I again, the Black Lightning costume, I think is the worst costume I've ever seen in a superhero project, but I love that show. It didn't affect that one bit, so I don't really care. I am going to say that I think this might be one of those times that they should have adapted it for the big screen. Now, I've read speculation that this is actually just going to be what she's wearing at the beginning of the movie and that her costume may change, but I don't know if that's true or not, so we'll have to wait and see. But this is what we've got right now, and I know a lot of people are very happy with it. I just don't know, bright yellow and purple. I, I don't know. I'm okay with it. It's going to be great. It's going to be fine. Rob, I am curious. Uh, as somebody who is a big fan of Yvonne from, from the old series and stuff yes, like that. Yes, I am. You had a chance to take a look at this image. What did you think of it? Well, you know what? I, I've learned long ago that you should never judge a costume based on the first picture that's released mm, that's of true. the character yep. in the costume. Because, look, watching something in motion and watching something within the context of a film, it can look very different depending on the lighting, depending on... I mean, to me, this looked very utilitarian. In a way, it was it was kind of goofy, um, but I do, I, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I sort of am indifferent to it. I mean, I love Yvonne Craig's Batgirl costume from the 60s at Batman television series. You can't, you can't do that now. <laughs> I mean, as much as I love it and I love Yvonne Craig, but you can't do that now. So this, this was actually kind of redolent of that costume, but I, I, I'm going to wait and see. You know, how many times did people bitch and moan and complain about costumes? I mean, dude, remember the X-Men controversy? They're all wearing black leather. Yeah, which I thought looked good. Uh -huh. It looked good in the movie. It made sense. It was like their mission. It was their uniform when they went out on a mission, which, you know, made sense. It, I gave them a little out of protection, whatever. I'm just going to hold off. But for me, I, I'm sort of indifferent about it. I kind of want to wait and see. I want to ask Ray about this because I, I mean, Ray, you put together this image and everything for us too. I, what do you think about the costume and everything? Like, do you um, like, like it? The colors. Yeah. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of maybe the first Ben Affleck Daredevil suit sort of thing. But I, actually, oh, I thought you were gonna say the first Ben Affleck Batman. No, no, no. <laughs> but I think like um, someone mentioned in the, in the chat, and I was thinking the same thing. Her. Her transportation might be some sort of motorcycle, right? Oh, it should be. I mean, if I it, mean, it, that's right. that's. I think there's some function to this suit. Yeah, that's what I think too. As well as, um, I don't know if people complain enough, and if everyone watches the first season and it's good, they well, it's might a movie. Actually, it's a movie. Uh, oh, the movie. 
they might actually up their game on the next one or whatever or make the costume better i don't know i have no idea speaking of the series though i'll say this the batwoman series on cw which is not good right well i mean look, look that's not fair for me to say i watched the first number of episodes and i didn't like it so i checked out so for all i know it got great for all i know but for me it wasn't good for the for the parts that i watched to be fair but i think the batwoman costume's better yeah, I do too. You, you know what I mean? I think it's, the ba- I actually think the Batwoman costume on the CW show actually looks pretty good. Yeah, uh, I like it more than this. What we're getting right now, but you're right, Rob. I mean, th- how many times have we seen an image, whether it's a costume or a design of something or something else, where we see an image and go, "And eh, that doesn't work," but then we see it in context and in motion, then we go, "Ah, uh, you know what? It does work." So maybe that'll be the case here. Yep. With the Batgirl costume. Anyway, guys, the question is for you. What do you think about this first look at the Batgirl costume with Leslie Grace coming up on HBO Max? Do you like it? Are you thrilled that it looks like it's pretty consistent with the comic book? Do you like that it kind of harkens back to the Adam West show back in the day? Do you wish it was a little bit more updated? Whatever you guys are feeling, jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number four. And our fourth main topic today gets submitted to us by Matt. And Matt writes, Hello, John and gang. If Rob is there as well, Rob is here, of course. Uh, Merry Christmas to you again. According to many sources now, Moon Knight is set for its first trailer during the Cardinals-Rams game Monday Night Football tonight. For the little we saw in the snip that came out with the announcement, it looks unlike any Disney Plus show ever created. It looks like 2022 will be the year of dark superhero projects with Doctor Strange 2 coming out in May. What are you guys wanting to see in this trailer? Will we see big surprises? Big surprises! Or all things we've never seen before. Thanks and have an awesome week. All right, man. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And yeah, listen. I love, because everybody knows, like my number one favorite thing is movies. My number two favorite thing is sports. And I love these big trailers dropping during Monday night football games or big Sunday football games because it merges my two favorite worlds. It makes me all happy. So tonight I get to get all my friends together, my sports loving friends, my movie TV loving friends, bring us all together to watch Rams tonight. Go Rams go, by the way, and uh, and watch that game tonight. Look, I put up a a question on my Twitter actually this weekend because as I'm feeling the anticipation from a lot of people about Moon Knight, a character 95% of people have never even heard of. <laughs> I, I put it on my Twitter and I said this, Rob, and I want to know what you think about this. I said, is it fair to say that Moon Knight may be the most anticipated first trailer for a, Dis- for a Marvel Disney Plus show so far? I don't know if it was as highly anticipated as Mandalorian was, but for a Marvel Disney Plus show, I mean, we were looking forward to our first look at WandaVision. We were looking forward to our first look at Falcon, Winter Soldier, Loki, Hawkeye. But I don't know that I've ever felt as much excitement from a lot of people as I do about this Moon Knight trailer, which raises another really good question, which is with the trailer dropping tonight, I realize a lot of people don't know much about Moon Knight. And so I thought it would be good today because we are lucky here at the John Campia show that we do have, uh, for me personally, 
the biggest Moon Knight fan I have personally ever known in my life. And Robert Meyerburnett sitting right over here. And I thought we should take advantage of this moment as we're waiting for the trailer to come out tonight to find out a little bit more about Moon Knight. Because I know a lot of you guys don't know anything. So, Rob, I want to ask you a few questions about Moon Knight. Now, there's a few things I know, nowhere near as much as you do. But for the people who watch and don't know much, basically, let's just start with a big general question. Who is Moon Knight? <laughs> Moon Knight was a character that was introduced as a antagonist in the pages of the comic Werewolf by Night in 1975. And he appeared for a couple of issues. And then he was sort of a bit player in a few other comics. And it wasn't until he was given his first solo outing in Marvel Spotlight that he had its own, his own story. And then he appeared, I mean, he was in things like The Defenders, and he would show up in various places, but he was sort of undefined. And it wasn't until he started appearing as a backup in the pages of uh, the Hulk magazine. There was a Hulk magazine, it was an oversized, not like the same size as a regular comic book, a little oversized. And he was written by Doug Mensch and drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. And that was the first time he really shined. And then in 1980, Moon Knight was given his first solo comic book that was also written by Doug Mensch and Bill Sienkiewicz. And what was interesting about that run, that's when I discovered him. And basically, Moon Knight was an ex, uh, the, the name of the characters, the human name of the characters, Mark Spector. He was a former Marine, then he became a mercenary, and while he was plundering a, uh, a tomb in Africa with other mercenaries like uh, Bushman, a guy who had a tattooed skull on his face, he worked for these, they were bad guys. The archaeologist working in this tomb, he killed that archaeologist, or they killed that archaeologist, and Moon Knight rescued that archaeologist's daughter, Marlene, and because of that, Bushman turned on him, and he was left for dead in this tomb, the tomb of Khonshu, the Egyptian god of the moon. And oh, yeah, we all know Khonshu. Yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. knows Khonshu. Yeah. Everyone knows Khonshu. And apparently... Conk, we call him. Yeah, Khonshu may or may not have resurrected Mark Spector, brought him back from the dead. And what ended up happening was he goes back to New York, and with one of his closest buddies or allies, his Alfred Frenchie, uh, his sort of butler, manservant, yet compatriot, he established himself in New York very much like Bruce Wayne. As a matter of fact, early on, Moon Knight, Moon Knight was considered Marvel's Batman clone because Mark Spector then took on another persona of Stephen Grant, rich New York playboy. And so at night, uh, he there was, so there was Mark Spector, Stephen Grant, and then there was Jake Lockley, cab driver, that Moon, Mark Spector would go undercover as a cab driver in New York City and drive around and keep tabs on the New York underworld. And he was like a rich billionaire who had Marlene as his girlfriend, Frenchie as his Alfred and compatriot, and he would fly around in a moon copter instead of having a, <laughs> instead of having a Batmobile, he had the moon copter, and he would fight crime. And uh, it was Doug mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz drawing, and what was what I liked about it was it, it very much captured a Batman spirit, but it also had the film noir elements. I mean, there was an antagonist stained glass scarlet, this woman who 
he ran afoul of, who was taking down dudes for various reasons, which you should find out on your own. But he was he was more of a noir, like a 40s noir character meets Batman. And that's why I fell in love with this character. And he had, I liked the fact that he had these multiple identities that would help him move through New York society or his cab driver persona, Jake Lockley, would help him go into the underworld on the streets of New York. So he was very much a character like um, Daredevil meets Batman, very much a street level character. He really had no superpowers unless you consider he was a great hand-to-hand combatant he was very much like batman to the point where even bill sinkevich had an identity crisis when he was drawing the comics because people uh, compared his art to neil adams the great neil adams now that series only lasted 38 issues and then they kept over the years they would try and bring back moon knight he was a member of the west coast avengers he was he was he was a, a, all things to all people he was like this ubiquitous character they would just stick into other things and then eventually someone hit on the idea of wait a minute what if these multiple personalities or these multiple identities what if they were multiple personalities and they actually gave moon knight the character disassociative identity disorder they basically made him crazy. And and so the Mark Spector persona, the Stephen Grant persona, the Jake Lockley persona, he even had the persona as, a, they gave him a persona as a little girl, like called the inner child or something. And then he was Mr. Knight, where he would dress up in an all white suit with a mask on. So it, he got very strange. It got really, really weird. Now I have followed Moon Knight through all of these different incarnations and some of the storylines where he went crazy or he thought of himself as other Marvel characters were pretty entertaining. But for me, the core, the emphasis of the character was always that first run that mentioned Sinkevich had done where he was this sort of Batman with multiple identities. That was a film noir character. That was the Moon Knight I fell in love with. But the crazy version of Moon Knight is quite interesting as well. And he was part of like Marvel Knights. He fought, uh, well, not, uh, um, well, he did fight. There were supernatural elements to him. He does have visions. You find out that Khonshu was not just an Egyptian god, but actually an alien entity from like the outside that has brought him back from the dead more times than I can count. So there is... <laughs> So that's kind of Moon Knight has like the character itself. There's been multiple different iterations of Moon Knight that people have have different affection for. I think this is going to be an amalgamation of all of those things where we're going to see probably the mercenary side. I would imagine we'll have to see his origin because nobody knows who he is. So maybe we'll see him. We'll see Bushman. We'll see him in Africa. We might see Werewolf by Night who was actually in uh, issues 29 and 30 of the original run of the comic. And I love this character, but this character, it doesn't even, he, Moon Knight doesn't even necessarily have recognizable villains that you would, he's got a lot of villains, but not like the Joker. I mean, Bushman can be one of them, I guess. He's got a brother. There's all, the Black Spectre is one of my favorite antagonists in the Black Spectre too, but it's going to be, to me, I'm so excited to see this show, but I'm curious to know what iterations are they going to draw from? Right. You know, and I really don't know. And that's always the big question going into these things, because so many of these comic book characters have had so many different iterations all the time. And you're always well, like, even if you look at Ant-Man, it's like, well, OK, when we think of Ant-Man in the comics, we think of Hank Pym. But they decide to go more and focus more on the Scott Lang one. What from the little you've seen so far, which was only glimpses. 
what do you have the impression of that they're going for, including if you count in the fact that they've got Oscar Isaac playing the role? Well, I think, first of all, Oscar Isaac is awesome as as the character of, of Mark Spector. I think they're going to do a combination of two things. I think they're going to they're going to deal with his mercenary persona, but they're going to early on delve into the disassociative identity disorder that he has. And it's going to be a, we're going to it'll be it'll be a combination of real street level grit and surrealism and mysticism and maybe a bit of the supernatural i think they're going to do both of those things and i think that's why i'm interested to see if that's how they're going to approach it because we've seen clearly there is a definite horror a spin on this i mean there i could definitely see blade showing up i'm not saying marshall marshall ali is going to be in this but we heard that well, his, we've already seen him pop up in another well, yeah we thing, heard him right? he heard we his heard voice i mean he definitely he definitely has that potentiality so um what was really interesting was donald moat the makeup uh, uh oscar isaac's makeup man who he met on like dune uh I interviewed him for the Designing Hollywood podcast, and it was very funny. He told me something really interesting. He said, you know, we're working on this show, and Oscar Isaac is not sure how uh, how much people know Moon Knight, and does anybody know Moon Knight? Because we don't really know Moon Knight. And when I was talking to him, he was in Budapest where they were filming, and I said, bruh. And I reached over and I pulled off a, a Moon Knight, <laughs> I, I pull, pull off a Moon Knight bro. bust and uh, my bro and uh, the uh, the some figures I had of Moon Knight. And I said, no, Moon Knight is kind of this if there's a cult superhero figure meaning not not like cult, like, you know, a cult movie or a cult band. If there's a cult superhero within Marvel, I think Moon Knight's one of those people. There's a very, very devoted but small fan base to this character. And I said, there's a lot of people waiting for the show. So. Yeah, I think we're going to get a combination of the two. I think they're going to delve into the disassociative identity aspects of the character. But at the same time, we're going to see a lot of gritty street level New York City action. Um, and I know I don't think they're going to introduce the West Coast Avengers in the series, but they could. <laughs> but they could because he was a member of the West Coast Avengers for a while. Uh, Rob, I have a question. Do you think it's a mistake for them releasing Moon Knight? Uh after moonfall shouldn't have been before you know, moonfall? <laughs> it's the prequel series right oh oh uh, yeah moonfall well, I think, watch i think maybe in the end the climax of this series could very well be moon knight preventing the moonfall from happening because he needs the moon in the sky <laughs> to like the the phases of the moon are what delineates the phases of his personality so one can only hope all i know is that March 30th, after, of course, Moonfall begins yeah, or ends February its theatrical 4th. run. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this. Knowing nothing about Moon Knight, he is the coolest looking, one of the coolest looking characters I, I've I've seen. Like, just like, just looking at the comic book covers, the statues, the toys. Oh, yeah. He looks well, awesome. That's why when, when I was at Frankenstein's, I was there buying my, uh, my Captain America uh, uh, Infinity War hot toy. And we came across this Moon Knight mini statue thing, whatever it is. And I just remember looking and going, oh, my God, that's beautiful. Like, it just it, it just looks so good. And I'm thinking, like, Rob's got a God. So I, so I picked it up for you. But it's like, you, I just remember looking at That was the first time I got. To, I've always thought the costume looked great. But it was when I saw that figure that I'm like, I'm starting to get a picture about how truly 
awesome this could look on screen. Yeah. I mean, the only question you'll ask yourself is, mm, you know, when you're running around as a superhero, is it best to have an all white costume? You know, you know, you, you, gotta, know, you, know, you gotta send a lot of those to the dry cleaners. And also like a Disney Plus series is absolutely perfect for a character like this because I know nothing about him, but I'm very intrigued to get to know this character through whatever they're gonna show. You yeah. know what I mean? I know it's not gonna be as in-depth as, you know, all the comics, but I hope it, it gives us some sort of knowledge of... Uh, well, one of the things about this comic, the, especially the the first version, it was a very adult-oriented comic. I don't mean like... It was just adult themes, you know, themes that I wasn't seeing being dealt with in comic books at the time. And as far as Marvel history goes, it was one of three comics that began the direct sale market, meaning you used to be able to buy comics on a spindle rack at the drugstore. Oh, right. But in the early 80s, beginning with Moon Knight issue 15, it became a direct sale only comic, which means it could have more mature content and it was sold only at comic book stores. And the first three comics that Marvel did that with was Kazar, Moon Knight and uh, Micronauts. And that changed the industry. So also beginning with issue 15, there were more um, adult themed uh, material in the comics. And I have to tell you something. I, when I was in high school, I was trying to explain the validity of comic books to one of my teachers, the great Carol Penke, who, let it be said, I had a massive crush on, and I was trying to impress her. I gave her the two stained glass uh, scarlet issues of Moon Knight, and I said, here, check these out. And she's like, well, these are pretty good, but they're just full of film noir tropes. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what makes them cool. Shout out to you, Carol Penke. You should have got him back. <laughs> I got him back. Oh, good. good. Well... Guys, listen, the question is for you. What do you think about all this? Did that, I mean, thank you for the history left on that, Rob. That was, that was a great breakdown of an introduction. That is a great introduction to the character for a lot of you guys as we head in tonight to seeing the Moon Knight trailer. Of course, we're going to talk a lot about that trailer once we get on the show tomorrow. So, guys, what are you thinking about it? What's that? No, no, I just wanted to know the release date. Sorry, John. Oh, the release uh, date. Do we have show? a release date for this? No, yet? but here's the thing. No, I think it's March 30th. I but no, here's the thing. I think they're going to announce the release date tonight. Oh, well, I no, thought it was sure. already announced. We'll, we'll know, know for sure then. I, okay. I did like I I think I saw some things that might have slipped out, but we'll know for sure tonight. I suspect it might even be earlier than that. I mean, I we don't know. We as long as it's sure. closer to moonfall. Yeah, See, yeah. that's it's that's, gotta it's gotta ride those coattails. <laughs> I think tonight. When it plays the trailer, I don't know this. I, I'm just guessing. I think tonight when it plays the trailer, it will have a release date on it. That's what I'm guessing. So oh, yeah. that'll give us something to talk about as well. Anyway, guys, how are you feeling about this? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. And by the way, guys, I just want to shout out a couple of our live viewers who sent in some uh, super chats just to be supportive during the show. Noah AG, Raphael Castillo sent in super chats. Carolina 2959.3 sent in like a $20 super chat while we were talking. Thank you so much, guys, for that and supporting our channel. All right, guys. With that all down, let's now move over and start taking the questions you guys have been sending in. Once again, on the last episode we did, we only did super chats and we didn't get to any of the tip questions. Today, we will focus on the tip questions and try to get caught up if we're still behind. Robert Meyer Burnett has already said he'll do a companion video for us today, which we need so badly. So anyway, let's not waste any time and get right into it, shall we? We're going to get things started off here with where are we at? We're starting off with HV3 who writes, 
I liked Book of Boba Fett Episode 3, but it was very clunky. Is it just me or did the Vespa gang also remind you of Griff's hoverboard gang in Back to the Future 2? I was just waiting for the line, if you go over water, you need power. Listen, I saw so many memes. So many of you guys sent me so many memes of that the hover gang hoverboard gang from that saying, Oh, look, it was an early look at a uh, man or of uh, Boba Fett episode three. I completely agree with the HV three. Uh, John or goat Rodriguez writes, Hey John, I love the show. Thank you so much. I recently returned to my job from three 30 PM to 2 AM. And because of this, I can no longer watch Thursday night premieres. And John, it pained me. Effing pained me that I can't watch scream on Thursday night. My heart breaks well hopefully you had a chance to get out and see it anyway surprise surprise i liked it and if i liked it that's saying something i think a lot of you guys might like it too so i hope you had a chance to get in there and see it uh see it by the way or by the way michael hamilton just sent in a super chat in the live in the live chat there as well thank you michael all right next up k major writes hey john and crew so far after watching the pitch meeting for ghostbusters afterlife for the sixth time i think ghostbusters is the rare case where cgi of a deceased actor works it lends to the whole story and world that they have created just a thought you know i i, I was surprised when i saw even before ghostbusters afterlife came out like it was a few days before they put out pictures of all the original ghostbusters in there including the egon ghost which I was surprising, but listen, I'm not, I love Ghostbusters Afterlife. I'm not a big, big fan of the finale of it. Like it, it, I felt like it could have been done better. Like it felt very clunky. It's like, oh no, here we are now. We're the original Ghostbusters. We're here now. It's like, I felt like they could have written it to make it a more natural thing. But if you had told me, okay, at the end there, you're going to see Egon, his ghost pop up. And I, I probably would have said, really, that's a little cheesy. But when it happens in the movie, I'm not going to lie, I got a little bit emotional. What did you think about the end of that? Like, well, did, it's did also that a nod. It was a nod to one of the animated yeah, episodes, yeah, the yeah. real Ghostbusters they had. And I, I thought, in a way, because it had already been set up, I think, like you said, it's a ghost. So it works. You're not, you're not looking at the uncanny valley nature yeah. of it all. You know, and I, 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 for what the movie was, it, it worked I thought it worked well. I agree. All right, next up. We've got uh, K Major who writes, guys, how much longer till we speak freely about No Way Home? I had more thoughts and questions. Four hours of spoiler discussions wasn't enough. You know, I, I think we were going to wait a few more weeks, but I mean, I, I'm seeing all the major articles now everywhere yeah. that's talking about it. They all, everything is out there now. So everything is out there. So, so I'm going to say, although this won't normally be it, I will say we could probably get into talking openly about Spider-Man. Again, like all the articles, all the the outlets are all writing all the stuff that happened in the movie now because almost everybody in the almost everybody in the world is except it like now. Norway. Yeah, except there's a few un uh, places that I haven't had a chance unfortunately, but I guess we could probably get into it now, I'm guessing. All right. By uh, Tiberius writes Hey, John and gang, enjoyed the recent discussion of the Potter reunion on HBO. Reminded me of talks I've had with Potter fans who don't understand my disappointment over having a Han, Luke, and Leia reunion during the sequel trilogy. Yeah, I mean, look, I love The Force Awakens. I love that movie. It's a, it's a real unfortunate progression as you go from Force Awakens, to, to which I love, The Rise of Skywalker, which I liked, sorry, uh, The Last Jedi, which I liked, to The Rise of Skywalker, which I hate. So it's just really quick to climb, but I love The Force Awakens. 
and story comes before characters. All right, I always say that, and I believe that. Story comes before characters. But with every rule, there are exceptions. And I agree with the criticism that a lot of people make, which was, how can you do Star Wars again, however many years later, and not have one scene with the big three, with Han, Luke, and Leia together? Now, I love this movie. I think the movie's great. But that was, to use an overused term, a missed opportunity. To, and, 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 again, and I get it. Story comes first, and in the story, it didn't have them crossing paths yet. I, I get it. But sometimes, in some circumstances, I think some exceptions need to be made sometimes. And seeing the three of them together on screen, I think, was a missed opportunity. Rob, I know... That has been a big, one of the big points of contention for you as well, that that is something they really should have. Was it indeed a missed opportunity? Oh, probably the biggest missed opportunity in all of cinema history. Mm. But it's validated by the fact that the movie made 900 plus million dollars domestically. Domestically alone. But I, I mean, it, it to me, look, I, I find that the, the Star Wars sequel trilogy might be the biggest missed opportunity in all of cinema history. And mm -hmm. I, I it baffles me to this. It will always baffle me. But the fact that you... Don't put those. If you're going to use those characters, yeah. If you're you not going to use, use them, that's fine. I mean, it, but if you're going to use it, them, it's it, it's not only that. Even like R two D two. Look, this was all a business decision. We all Disney's mandate, I'm sure, was we need new characters that can be our Star Wars. These are the characters that we're going to exploit. These are the characters that we're going to we're going to we're going to market BB eight, not R two D two. You know, I get that. I totally understand that. But putting a tarp, putting R2-D2 under a tarp, the hero of six movies previous to this one, uh, it, it's just, it, it, there were so many bad decisions in Force Awakens, I thought. The worst being, why are our characters not, if you're a kid, if you're eight years old watching Star Wars for the first time, you just finished Return of the Jedi, where the Empire is defeated, the Emperor is gone, Vader is burned at, the, at a pyre, all this happens. By the way, spoiler alert, sorry. You go to Force Awakens and the galaxy's turned to, Crap. How did that happen? Were our characters incompetent? Were Luke, Leia, and Han suddenly, did they suddenly just, I don't know, have take leave of their senses and allow the First Order to arise? This is not cool. But the movie was awesome. <laughs> we, we have different opinions of that, but, but, but we agree that not putting those three on, on, on camera together, I, I, I'll never understand that decision. Anyway, next up, uh, we've got Tabiris also writes, What's the big deal, they ask. I reply by asking them what they would think of a Potter sequel. Oh, this was like a part two to that. What would they think of a Potter sequel where there was never a scene with Ron, Harry, and Hermione together? Their faces usually twist into a mask of terror and silently mouth, oh no. Yeah, yeah. No, that, it's, it's, it's a good observation, Tiberius. It's an absolutely accurate observation. Uh, in reply with, welcome to my world. Now I know what John is going to say. Uh, that telling a good story is more important, and I agree. But in my opinion, if the overall story is the sequel trilogy, um, it had better, it had it it ha had been better or more coherent. Uh, the lack of seeing Han, Luke, and Leia together at any point uh, during the sequel trilogy wouldn't have felt left such a gaping hole in my Star Wars heart. I disagree with that because I loved it, and I still felt that that was a big missed opportunity. I loved it, and yes, again, I do think story comes first. It does. 
but there are times when exceptions have to be made. And having Han, Luke, and Leia together on screen had to be one of those times. Anyway, uh, Jonathan writes, so I have a filmmaking technical question that's been bugging me for a while. When they cut to a different angle, is it the same camera or different? I know a film utilizes multiple cameras, but do they use two when, please spell when correctly, uh, but do they use two when cutting? Uh, I need to know. Well, Rob, that's that's a different thing from time to time. Like, yeah, you can shoot a scene mm -hmm. where you have multiple cameras shooting at the same time, and then you can just cut between those angles. But a lot of movies, including the way they always used to do it, is you set up a scene and put the camera in one spot, film it, then you tell the actors to do it again, but now you've moved the camera to another spot, then they do the, the scene again, and then you edit those together. But, I, I mean, I think most movies still use one camera, except for maybe in some action sequences. What do you think the most common thing they do now Yeah, is? I mean, no, the, every shot in a movie is known as coverage, a piece of coverage, every angle. And a lot of the time when you're making films, especially lower-budgeted movies, you don't when you have one camera... You have focus pullers, you have the clapper loader, you've got different people, you have a team of people. And sometimes the director of photography is not even behind the camera, you know? And so adding a second camera adds a second camera crew and it can get very expensive over the, especially if you're making a low budget indie movie. So John's correct. When you're shooting, say a restaurant scene where two people are sitting down talking, frequently it's a single camera. However, if you're shooting something like a comedy and you have gifted actors that are open to improvisation, you want to make sure that you get everything that the actors do. So sometimes it's smarter to have two cameras shooting all the time. So you're getting those both sides of a conversation. Like John pointed out in a Michael Bay action sequence, they might have eight or 10 cameras running, getting all of the action, especially on a large stunt, because if you have an explosion, you don't want to miss it. You can't reset it and do it again. Or if you did, it'd be hugely expensive. So you get as many cameras as you can to shoot those expensive stunts. And then you have all those pieces of coverage to cut between. That's basically in a all nutshell. Right. That's a good question, man. All right. Next up. Sempigar writes, uh, one of two, Boba may well work for the authority, may as well work for the authorities. He's a good guy in this show. How can you be a crime boss without using fear, intimidation and being ruthless? Well, he's trying to find a way. I'm just confused as to what his character wants to be. And I don't see any part two. So we'll leave it at that. Um, I have, listen, with all the issues I have with the book of Boba Fett right now, him trying to do it a different way is not one of my problems. Honestly, it's not. The the fact that he saw, look, Jabba came and went, and he did it a certain way. Bib Fortuna tried to follow in his footsteps, and that didn't work. So I'm going to try to do it a different way. Maybe that partially comes from his experiences with the Tuscans in the desert, which I still haven't really loved that part of the show. So I have my issues with the show, but honestly, for me, Sempigar, I don't have a problem. My, my other problems come from his, the fact that he seems to be quite a stupid individual. <laughs> I mean, that, that to me is the bigger problem, that this Boba Fett seems quite stupid. It's like, hey, you kids. Ah, you look like good kids. I don't know if you can fight, but come work for me. I hope you can fight. It's like, what? What's happening? Oh, yeah, we got to go visit the mayor. Should we take a ship? Nah, I think we're good. We'll, we'll walk. Through the desert? Yeah, yeah, I think we're good. In armor? In armor. <laughs> I think we're good. He just doesn't seem to be particularly bright. And listen, the first moment you meet the mayor, you know something shady. And how do, how do you go up? Oh, let's just go through the front door and talk to reception. Hey, can we come see the guy, please? And let it, my, my problem is he doesn't seem particularly bright, Rob, right now. So uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, that's my problem. 
You know, he was exceedingly bright in Empire Strikes Back. He outthought Han Solo. He and in Mandalorian. Tactics. Yeah, and in Mandalorian, he was ruthless and badass. In this, I'm like, how does he expect to... How does he expect to be a crime boss when, I mean, he walks into a town literally in the middle of the street. He doesn't even stick to the sides of the walls or anything. He rocks, walks right down the middle of the street. Yep. Where are the snipers? <laughs> you know, there could be people anywhere. It's not too bright, buddy. Yeah, well, we'll see. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to watch the next episode. Let's see how it goes. All right. Uh, next up, fan of Bob Saget, RIP writes, Tom Hanks is America's dad, but Bob Saget was America's fun, cool uncle. He was a great comedic talent, so dang funny. He will be missed. Have you seen uh, That Ain't Right, his HBO special, So Funny, R.I.P. Bob? I never did. No, I, I didn't either. I don't think I saw that one. I, I mean, I've seen a bunch of his stand-up comedy, and he was really, I mean, very vulgar, but he was really funny. And again, his appearance in The Aristocrats, that was the one to me that went like, oh my God, this is the dad from Full House. I mean, yeah, and he will be missed. All right, next up, Jordan Marshall writes, Hey, John, about the Batman rating being PG-13, uh, what uh, what were people expecting? A raunchy bondage porn with Batman and Catwoman in the middle of the movie? I actually have that. <laughs> Got that on uh, you know, a DVD guy behind the building uh, down the street. Um, uh, let's see. Batman and Catwoman in the middle of the movie where Batman says to Catwoman, tie me up and clamp my bat nips. Yeah, look, we we had that. This comes from a discussion we had last week about the fact that it is official. The Batman is going to be PG-13, which is exactly what it should be. I mean, when you look at The Dark Knight, it was PG-13. No one's going to say it. That movie was too happy. <laughs> no, it was. There's great. We've already seen from the trailer. This is going to have some very visceral violence. You can do a lot of violence in movies. What you can't do, and Rob, you put it perfectly, you can't have blood squibs. So you can do everything you're going to do to these people. Just don't see blood splashing. It's not going to make the scene any better. I mean, they, so kill, with it. they kill Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yes, they did. Blew her up. And, and, and Harvey Dent got half of his face burned off. I mean, that was hardcore. That effect, his two-face effect, that was brutal. I mean, that wasn't R-rated. Yeah, it's, gonna, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Anyway, all right. Thanks for writing that in, Jordan. Next up, uh, we've got MD who writes... I love uh, Kim's background ablish. She was really good at that. When people, uh, you were showing your extra big Funko Pops, she goes, that's not a pop, that's a bang. Uh, she makes me chuckle so much. Kim, you rock, as do you all. I remember she really would always love the pops that we had there. And I remember her talking about those. And uh, yeah, her contributions on the show are going to be missed. We're super excited to have Chris and and Aaron making her return and super excited to have Chris back. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's there. All right, MD writes, Last one, I just got around to watching Cruella, and I never expected it to be a heist movie. I really enjoyed it and... Let me try this again. I really enjoyed it and... Oh, and wasn't expecting to at all. Also, watch Don't Look Up, which reminded me of a South Park episode. It really <laughs> did. Didn't hate it, though. This thing, I tell you what, Cruella is another one of those movies that... Uh, I mean, I saw... They showed us at D23 years ago the first look at Cruella, and they showed us some footage, and I'm like, eh, eh. But I thought it was really quite good. Did you finally get around to watching Cruella? I did. I watched it with Elizabeth, and I felt the same way. I, You know, I started watching, and I'm like, this is really good. You know, and I, I, I mean, I wouldn't – it's not genius, but it was a very different kind of a movie than I thought it was going to be, and I, I really enjoyed it. I, You know, I, I hope they make another one. I, and I think they are. All right, next up. Uh, let's see. War Doctor 10 writes, 
Hey, John and crew, according to Rotten Tomatoes, the audience loves The King's Man since it's got an 80% audience score compared to a 42% critic score. Does this change your mind about wanting to see the film? Thanks and bring on the filthy. Nope. I talk here for me is I talk to a number of people I know who know me and my taste pretty well. And they're all like, this was terrible. And so, I mean, and these are the same people who told me like, John, I know you're not looking forward to scream at all, but I think you're going to like this. I think you're going to like this movie. And they were dead right. I had no interest in Scream, went in to watch it. These are the same people who's like, nah, John, you're not going to like Kings, man. So I, I didn't bother wasting my time going to see it, and I'm probably not going it's to. It's made almost $100 million worldwide, though. That's not good enough. I mean, but I, yeah, I, I, it's I, more than maybe I thought it would have. I really enjoyed the first one. So I do want to see this. I like the World War One setting. I just haven't gotten around to seeing That's it. That's the other thing that kills my enthusiasm, though, is that I did like the first one so much. I know. And really didn't like that the That scene second in the one. church. Oh, it's just one of the iconic action scenes. One of the all-time iconic action scenes. I mean, I mean, it's and what makes it even greater is that it's Colin Firth, the Academy Award-winning Best Actor for King's Speech, then goes and does something like that. Uh, he, and he's uh, he's just a great actor. Oh, he's so good. He's so, so good. good. What what is what does he say in the in the thing? What make it the man? Manners make it the man. Yeah, manners. Manners make it the man. I love that line. All right, next up. We have Carlos who writes, hey, John and team, with the brief introduction uh, of the Spider-Men in No Way Home, will we see more of them in the MCU? Thoughts? Also, I have seen movie five times, a record for me. That's a big question that's come up a lot. I honestly think the answer is no. That being said, I won't be shocked if we do. Like, I, I think there could be, I mean, I've heard whispers that Sony wants to do another one with Andrew Garfield, which is like, uh, hello, seven years too late, but okay, whatever. I mean, you should have made another one anyway. Right. I, re but I really like Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. I have for a long time. I know, Rob, what do you think? Do you think we're going to see any, do you think we'll see either of these other two Spider-Men in the MCU again? I, I don't know if it's going to be in the MCU, but like I've said, John, I think we're going to see Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man in Venom 3. Right. I hope and you're I don't right. Know if you, we can't. I mean, do we count that in the MCU? I mean, it's not. Even though it's it's MCU adjacent. Technically, no. I guess technically no. But I I don't think you're right. But oh my god, I hope you're right. I, oh, I'm I hope saying, you're right. I I think I think they're gonna do it. I would I would love my because, favorite Spider-Man in a in a. I love the Venom franchise. So my favorite Spider-Man in a Venom movie, I'd be all because about that, that would be. I I I can't believe after the success of this movie. Putting Venom and Spider-Man together again, I mean, it was in Spider-Man 3, of course, but the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, who says in that movie, look, I've been brutal. I've, I've, I've went down a dark path. Yeah, Maybe I stopped pulling my punches. Stop pulling my punches. What a great, there's your story. He stopped pulling his punches, but then as a result of No Way Home, had to sort of rethink his approach. And as he's trying to go not pulling his punches, he ends up fighting a creature that he... He has to go all in on again. He has his. He has to find his brutal side. I mean, there's your story. Again, the difficulty with that, of course, is this Venom is not the the villainous Venom. I know. And so they have to come up with a way to do that. But I, I, again, I hope you're right. All right. Next up, uh, we've got Cody Cordy who writes. Hey, John, just wanted uh, to let you know this Saturday is my 21st birthday and I've been waiting to drink a beer in a theater watching Scream with my brother. And it's obviously this came in, I think, Friday and it's finally going to happen. Scream is both our favorite horror movie and is also our brotherly bond. Aww. See, that's the, that's the thing. What too. a great story. I love that. That is a great story. I, I, get I hope he made his brother buy him the drink. <laughs> but that's something we were talking about earlier. It's like 
I don't like this franchise other than the first movie and now the newest one, but it is undeniably very, for lack of a better term, sticky with a lot of audiences. It just, it, it, it just sticks a lot of fandom to it that have a real, real passionate loyalty to it. And you don't see that an awful lot. And for it to have that, I think is, is really, really very special. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up, we've got, where's Quentin? There he is. Uh, Quentin Tarantino writes, I might be alone on this, but I'm a big fan of the Robert Rodriguez slash Danny Trejo machete movies. And now that they're working together on the Boba Fett show, it gave me hope for another machete sequel. Fingers crossed. LOL. Um, I'll tell you what. There's not a lot of movies other than Star Wars, DC or Marvel that I have had as much pure excitement for as I did for machete. The, the concept of it coming off the grindhouse stuff, Danny Trejo and this ridiculous over-the-top exploitation kind of thing. I was so excited for it. And the movie starts, and I love the first five minutes, and I hated the rest of it. I, I just, I didn't find it to be all that good. It just didn't live up to that that hope. Like, I, I love Danny Trejo. Like, I even love Danny Trejo in The Flash. I love his character in The Flash. Like, I love him just about everything. But for whatever reason, it just didn't live up to my own personal hype for it. And the second one, I also didn't like. What did you think about the Machete movies? Did you enjoy them? I, I, same thing with you. I, look, I wanted them to be the pinnacle of exploitation cinema. You know, uh, I just, I didn't, I didn't love them. And look, if they do make Machete in space, I'd watch that. But I, Yeah. All right, let's uh, keep going here. Next up, we've got Old Man Boba Fett, who put two of two, but I did not see a one of two. Uh, so I'll just read his two of two. Uh, that's your wife, Anne. By the way, guys, I mentioned this many times. Anne is not have an E on the end. Anne is just A-N-N. -N. She's not Anne of Green Gables. It's just A-N-N. -N. Anyway, uh, that your wife, Anne, will love this film. Uh, it was just shown at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival and received a 14-minute standing ovation. I don't want to spoil too much about the movie, but let's just say it's Beauty and the Beast for the modern era. Oh, you know what that is? What do you think it is? I think it's the animated film Belle. Oh, I've heard great things yeah, about Belle. It made $2 million this past weekend, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that he's also the director who made Summer Wars and... Um, uh, his work, I, I'm dying to see this movie. I saw a trailer for it in IMAX before The Matrix Resurrections, and I really want to see it. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing really good things about it. By the way, our friend Connie Sang sends in a Super Chat badge just saying, how's it going? Hello, Connie. Thanks for writing that. And Rob and I both know Connie. We're going to Disneyland with her. Really? Yeah, our friend Eugene got us four passes to Disneyland, so we're all going, I think, on the 30th. Yeah, I've sworn never go back to Disneyland, but <laughs> I will say this. So a buddy of mine named peter serretta oh yeah he, he's the founder of slash film yeah you know a good the great website slash film he and his girlfriend have been uh, created like a separate youtube channel for their theme park going adventures yep. particularly the disney stuff yep and they did this thing recently where i can't remember how much it was i think it's like five thousand dollars or something but you get the full vip tour like you get a personal disney tour guide with you and your group that i think it's up to eight people or 10 people or, or something like that right eight to ten people and they will escort you to every attraction you want to go in you get right onto the rides 
when you go and have lunch, your, your personal attendant will go and get your food for you and bring you that. And like, he was doing, he, he said that they did like 23 rides in a day that you never can do that without this service. No. Right. And so me and Ann and a few other friends were like, okay, we get like 10 of us. <laughs> That's that. I mean, it's expensive. That's like 500 bucks a person still. But you could spend close to that anyway. Yeah, you're going to do that anyway. Going to Disneyland for a day. Yeah. And while I have sworn off going to Disneyland, I got to say, watching Peter do that little tour made me a little, have a little bit of FOMO. Like, I'm like, okay, that looks like it could be fun. Maybe that will be my birthday present. Do you get to eat at Club 88 or what is that? What is, what is I, the... th I think they'll get you in anywhere. I mean, the, the my favorite restaurant at Disneyland is Blue Bayou. Yeah, of course. The one that's right on the water for the Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. right? I love that restaurant. It's good. So I might have to look into that at some point. Okay. Uh, sorry. Anyway, let's get back to it here. Um, uh, an anonymous viewer writes, Hey, John and crew. Uh, first, it is my uh, it is my first time tipping, and I just wanted to let you guys know how much I love your show. Thank you so much for that, man. Second, uh, all I have is one word, Bell. That's what you were just talking That's about, right? That's what I was just talking about. Uh, it's a new Japanese animated film coming out this weekend, and I would bet my life savings... Um, you, oh. you you might have read that second part first. Oh, that might. Oh, we yeah. might have put it in the wrong order. And yeah. then I bet your wife, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's good catch, right? Yeah, puzzle solved. <laughs> Mystery solved. Yeah. See? Detective pleasures. I know my I know my animated films. Come Rob on, knew what he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, uh, and yes, so yeah, I'm I'm very excited to see it. And anyway, yeah, so we got that all straightened out. Okay, next up. Uh, Mighty JT writes, one of three. Hi, John. I wrote this in disagreement with one of your takes on No Way Home, and it was taken by Rob, and he actually agreed with me. Oh, then it's probably definitely wrong. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts now. You said that Peter was being selfish by trying to save the villains, uh, but I see it as nearly the exact, uh, as nearly the same exact choice Luke made in Return of the Jedi when he chose to save Vader. Luke didn't ask the rest of the galaxy if they were okay with him trying to save Vader or just trying to kill him, even though he was the best, even though he was the best and there was no part three. Okay, so um, I would say this. Oh, that's a fucking completely different scenario. Here's why it's a completely different scenario. Vader being alive in that situation was not the threat to the galaxy. The threat to the galaxy was the emperor and the death star. That's what had to be destroyed. Luke did not compromise getting the death star destroyed in order to try to save his father, Vader, which by the way, is another big difference. That's his father, right? In the scenario of Spider-Man, no way home in order to try to help these villains that he's never met and has no way of knowing that even if he does help them, that they won't just die the moment he sends them back anyway, in order to help them, he must put the world at risk in order to help these guys. Peter has to put the world at risk. Dr. Strange made it very clear. Every moment these guys are here, untold catastrophe could happen. In order to save Vader, Luke did not have to put the mission at risk. The, the mission was going on down on Endor. That Death Star was going to blow up. The only question was, were they going to be on it when it did blow up? So I, and again, it was his father. So 
I don't see the two situations being remotely connected or similar in any way. I don't know, Rob. Like he was saying that you kind of agreed with them. What, what's your viewpoint on that? How well, do you see I, that? But, but the comparing and contrasting, I, I don't know about that. But in terms of Peter's impulse to save these villains, he doesn't know them. You know, he sees them as people. They come from alternate universes, and this whole situation is crazy anyway. And I think that, like, look, they were able to help Otto Octavius by taking out that faulty AI. So the chip, so he was no longer being controlled. And that was something that that helped him. I mean, that legitimately was able to help him through the cooperation of of all three of the Spider-Man. And I I think his impulse to want to help those characters was a good one. You know, that's what makes him Spider-Man. And I, I think that, yes, the reality had been torn, and but they were there. They were in front of him. So what was he going to do, not help them? You know, I think that he he had to try. I mean, I, I get that. I guess my one thing was, as somebody who loves the movie, my one thing was that that impulse to want to help them is great. But you didn't ask that family up the street with three children, you didn't ask their permission if it's okay that you put their children's lives at risk so you can help these people. But a good argument against what I'm saying is honestly this. The Spider-Man MCU films have always portrayed Peter as not being terribly bright. Like he's super smart scientifically, but when you go through the movies, this Peter often does make very short-sighted. He's a teenager. You know, Dr. Strange said it best in it. You know, I sometimes forget you're a kid. Because you go back to Spider-Man, the last Spider-Man movie, right? Like, he's got this Stark technology. What's he using it for? He's in, he's actually invading and violating these other kids' privacy by getting into their social media accounts and doing all this. Co- like, he's doing some really terrible stuff that maybe a kid would do. So, yeah, I feel as a hero... It was very stupid of him to feel like he had the right to put everybody else's lives at risk so he can help four individuals. But the movies have always portrayed him as maybe not having a lot of common sense sometimes. So so maybe there's a good argument to be made for that. Anyway, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. All right, thanks for writing that in, Mighty JT. All right, next up, Garden Variety Vagabond writes, uh, one of two. How would people react to today's movies if seen in the past? After the radio broadcast by the 23-year-old Olson Welles' War of the Worlds, man, uh, of the War of the Worlds on October 30th, 1938, as a series of fake news bulletins on his Mercury Theater on the air, the next morning he heard reports of mass stampedes of suicides and of angry listeners threatening to shoot him on sight. If I planned to wreck my career, he told several people at the time, I couldn't have gone about it better. <laughs> man, I still remember, every time the story comes up, and Rob, it's difficult for us to think about it, but when War of the Worlds, for those who don't know the story, the basic cliff notes of it is this. He did this radio drama that made it sound like we were actually interrupting you for this breaking news and talked about the story about, uh, you know, astronomers have detected explosion-like things on the surface of Mars. Uh, we'll keep up to date with this story and then later come back, you know, spacecraft have been living, and then actually describing on the radio an invasion of earth happening and people lost their shit. And Rob, if you could take, forget the radio broadcast, take one of the alien invasion movies in the last 20 years and show it to somebody in the 1930s 
Oh yeah, I mean, there's just the, <laughs> we talked about that before, but it's hard for us to wrap. How? I mean, when you think about that yourself, like, like how crazy is that? Like, what, what happened? It was well, that? there was actually a, a TV movie made about this called "The Night That Panicked America," and it was. <laughs> it had to be. I don't know if it was late seventies or early eighties, but I mean, it was crazy because people forget that. I mean, radio predated television and it was a huge thing people made people had appointment viewing with audio radio shows i mean that whether it was uh they had vaudevillian comedy they had stories they had i think people like jack benny started in radio and so people would be like at eight o'clock saturday night we're gonna listen to the mercury theater presented by orson wells you know so they're listening to these things and the idea like what we have mockumentaries or things like that now yeah they played this as if it was absolutely genuine yeah and and now broadcasting from grover's mill you know it was and why wouldn't people had never heard this before like it, it was something that nobody had ever considered like it was the radio isn't everything that's on the radio real you know and, yeah. uh, man i would love to i would love to have been there and heard that for the very first time being terrified i would have been scared to death especially if, if i was like eight all right next up we got mark netto who writes well folks i enjoyed the first three episodes of peacemaker more so than boba fett uh once again james gunn hit the mark no bros about it i'll tell you what <laughs> i'll tell you what i look i love suicide squad and i love james gunn but I didn't think the promos for Peacemaker looked all that great, to be honest with you. I didn't think they looked all that great. Boba Fett, I was dying to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have zero issue saying that Peacemaker is absolutely the superior show three episodes in. 100%. With, with by the way, the greatest opening credits, I think, to any television show ever. Rob, I was talking about it on the weekend. I said... Whenever you get to even Game of Thrones, which has a terrific opening, right? But whenever you're watching one of these shows, you know, the intro starts. And then after a few seconds, the little skip intro button appears. And you, yeah, of course, you skip it every time. I watched the three episodes of Peacemaker twice. Why did I hold up three fingers? I don't know. Twice. I watched all three episodes of Peacemaker twice. And every time when that opening credit starts, I'm just settling in. A dance number choreographed for people who cannot dance. it's the best thing i've seen on tv in forever and the show is magnificent and rob i went so far you weren't here with me i want to know what you think about this understanding it's only three episodes so far understanding this show peacemaker may go to crap starting in episode four understanding all of that i believe only three episodes in with where we're at right now i think this is the best thing dc's ever had on television I like it more than The Watchmen. I like it more than anything on the Arrowverse. And you know there's a lot of stuff on the Arrowverse I really, really like. And you know I really, really like The Watchmen. Yeah. I think this is the best thing DC's ever had on. Might change after this week, but like, what if... Uh, you and I haven't had a chance to talk on the show, but how have you liked Peacemaker so far? I, uh, dude, it's it's spectacular. I mean, and it's so funny and so both dark and crazy. The dialogue, I, I can't believe some of it. Now, I consider myself a straight guy. But looking at John Cena in his tidy whities he makes me he makes me gay Jason. I mean, I look at that guy. I mean, his fitness is is stupid. It's yeah, it's stupid. but it's not like jacked up. Like I got jacked up for the role. This is something coming from his wrestling background. I mean, he has a physical presence that really works for the show. And I think James Gunn is directing him where like he's a character who's kind of adult. 
but he's being directed in a very sympathetic way. I'm really liking his performance, which that show could have gone the other way for me. Oh, easily. I mean, it could have gone easily. the other way. And I love like John Cena was it Trainwreck. Yep. That he was in. He was great. Yes, he was. He was great in Trainwreck. And uh, I haven't liked him since then because he's always seemed a bit too over the top for me, just a he's, little bit. He's never quite been there yet. But and this. Eagly. And Eagly. Oh, oh, I mean, Eagly. Was it, God was it, love Eagly. Was it the first episode? Yeah, when yeah. Eagly like walks up next to him and just kind of looks up after the explosion. After he drops the possum? Yeah. After he drops the possum? I mean, it was, uh, there's so much. To me, you know how we talked about there's this James Gunn of Slither and the James Gunn of Super. Yes. This is the combination of the two. Whereas Guardians of the Galaxy was more the Slither James Gunn and Suicide Squad was more the Super James Gunn. I feel this show is that combination of both sides of his personality. And he's got the the body dark sense of humor, but then he's got the great fun character stuff. And I some of the dialogue, I can't believe like Robert Robert Patrick. Oh my God. <laughs> so you kill you kill a lot of people? <laughs> I was like, whoa! <laughs> I I cannot wait to see where they're going to go with Robert Patrick's character. Uh, I mean, I just love the show so much. Okay, anyway, uh, let's keep going here. Next up, Mark Netto also writes, Hey guys, Dota and Arcane upcoming seasons are on my list to peruse. I'd love to see a remake of Heavy Metal Movie. Saw it in The Hammer when it first came out. Do any of you remember Forbidden Planet? Effects must have been groundbreaking at the time. I remember Forbidden Planet. As far as Arcane, you're going to be waiting for a while. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, not, that's, that's very far off in the distant future, so don't hold your breath on that. Uh, Dota... With uh, if you watch the credits, you're going to see a, a certain Robert Meyer Burnett's name pop up in the credits for Dota. Um, Dota season two. By the way, if you like Dota, season two is wacky. It's awesome, but it goes places. It gets much bigger. It's uh, very very proud to have worked on that show. Uh, and what do you think about Forbidden Planet, do you dude? Forbidden Planet's like the precursor to to Star Trek. Forbidden Planet is probably the best science fiction film of the 50s. Some people might say Day of the Earth stood still, but it is a precursor to Star Trek. Uh, it's got one of the great robots of all time, Robbie the Robot and Francis. Um, it's and it's a it's a it's based on Shakespeare's play The Tempest, but don't worry, no Shakespearean dialogue. So all right. Easy to understand. Wonderful film. Wonderful film. Great great synthetic score. They use the uh uh the the theremin and stuff in that movie. All right, next up, we got Lucky, the Lucky Mojo who writes, uh, Martin Scorsese, when he sees that No Way Home is rated higher on IMDb than all of his films. You can't do this to me. I started this company. Uh, you know how much I sacrificed. Longtime viewer, first-time tipper. Uh, love to you and the team. Yeah, look, I love Spider-Man No Way Home. It is not as good as many of Martin Scorsese's films. Yeah, no. But, but, but it is wonderful. I, I mean, it's obviously wonderful. And again, I think it's time for all of us to move past that Look, it was a dumb comment. I love Scorsese, but that was a dumb comment he made. But it, it's now years ago that yeah. he that he said it. So it's it's kind of time for us to to probably move on from that a little bit. All right, next up, we've got Krogs who writes, "Hey John, for me the Dark Knight trilogy is my favorite series of comic book movies, and so Bale is my favorite Batman." Was curious with all the many actors who have wrote, who have wore the cape. Why is Ben Affleck your all-time favorite Batman? Well, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I'll say it here again. I am not saying that Ben Affleck's movies that he has been in as Batman are better than the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Obviously, they're not. But 
Ben Affleck is my favorite iteration of Batman because what Ben Affleck and Zack Snyder did was to me, at least in Batman versus Superman, there was a fundamental understanding that Snyder and Affleck brought to the character that I don't think anybody else has truly ever really grasped in bringing to the character, which is this one basic fundamental. Batman is the real person. Bruce Wayne is the fake mask. In every other iteration, even Nolan's, which are the better movies, but even Nolan's, he is Bruce Wayne who dons this persona of the Batman to strike. What Snyder and Affleck understood was that, and I've said this many times, Bruce Wayne died in the alley with his family. When, when young Bruce Wayne saw his parents shot in front of him, Bruce Wayne stopped, ceased to be, and the Batman was born. And at least in, in Batman versus Superman, that's what Affleck truly emoted from that. Even when talking to Alfred in the Batcave, he's not talking as Bruce Wayne. I mean, maybe he wasn't doing the voice, but he was talking. He was Batman talking to Alfred in there. And it's only when he's out and has to put on the facade of that he's Bruce Wayne. And to me, that's why, well, I'll never say they're as good as The Dark Knight, why Ben Affleck, to me, his portrayal of, of Batman will always be my favorite. Rob, I, I've, I've talked about this a lot. What, what are your, what's your thoughts on well, that? Well, I think that was a pretty astute analysis you just gave. I mean, I think that, that Bruce Wayne is a persona that, let's call him Batman puts on I have to tell you my two favorite scenes in any Batman movie is the very beginning of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice when when Bruce Wayne lands lands in Metropolis and is watching the battle from the street and he's in his three-piece suit and he runs into the destruction the phys physicality that Ben Affleck displays, the concern on his face, the horror, the anger that you see, to me, that's my favorite Bruce Wayne moment in any Batman movie. Because it, it, it's it, so good. It, it's, and then the other one is the warehouse fight in that oh, same movie. Oh, so good. I love I mean, that was fight. really the first time I ever thought that they nailed, like nailed. I mean, the Christopher Nolan movies have Batman fighting, but that fight scene showed Batman every, every, he used, he used gadgets, he used physical fighting, he used cunning. That whole fight scene, that to me is quintessential Batman, and those both come from the same movie. All right. Uh, next up, we got uh, Initial D's who writes, uh, long time no comment, was it just me, or did the chase scene in episode three of Boba Fett Remind you of the hoverboard chasing the back. We somebody else already wrote that in. Um, to the cheese and effects. Uh, sad. This is what we got. Disappointed. And yeah, man. Listen, it it is absolutely disappointing. I think what we've got in this show so far. Look, I, I was disappointed with episode one. I liked episode two. I, then, I really did. I, I mean, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. That train heist. I love the training of that the was, Tuscans. That was great. I mean, the whole thing, it was very classical. Very, It was very tropes. We've seen things like that. But I liked it. I did too. But then three. Then three happened. Now, the, the one really good moment with three was I, I truly felt the emotionality of the moment when... Fett comes back to the Tuscan Raider village and he sees it burned and obliterated and everybody dead. 
I'm like, I felt it. And, and I thought that was a very, very good scene. But again, the whole, and listen, I love Steven Root. I love Steven Root. Right. But just as I found it very jarring seeing, you know, Machete show up there, and I felt, I just feel like Steven Root, because he's a great actor. And again, we just watched him in uh, season three of uh, Succession. Seeing him pop up there, all of a sudden, it, it felt very jarring to me. And that, oh, these darn kids, they're blah, blah. But again, there was just so much of the, the chase scene was terrible. The Vespas were terrible. Boba Fett saying, well, I hope you can fight. I'm going to hire you. What? Yeah, I, all that was weird. I, I just, I have been, you know, Rob, we talked last week. Was, is Book of Boba Fett so far a disappointment? And I hate saying it, but yes, so far it's a bit of a disappointment. So we'll see. I mean, it still has four episodes to go. Maybe you can completely turn it all around. Where your well, I, yeah, I right feel now. like look, we saw the episode previously where where Boba Fett is teaching the Tuscans how to ride speeder bikes that are really fast and dangerous, and then they give us these these essentially scooters. And I understand very Quadrophenia esque scooters. If you haven't seen that movie, you should check it out. But I'm like, why? Like these characters. What what are they? They're they're when we meet that gang, they're standing around like a water fountain or whatever the hell they're standing around. They're just standing yeah. there. They're not even in a bar. They're not even in a. What, where do they hang out? Just outside in a circle? Like I watched that and I'm like, what is this supposed to be? Why are they hanging out in a circle? Are they drinking? What are they doing? Why are they there? I don't know. And what made Boba Fett go? Yeah, you're meddling kids, so I'm going to hire you to do what? <laughs> I, and then he literally says, "I hope you can fight." It's like really. You're not a very good crime boss. If you're like, I'm going to hire you. I, I don't know if you can fight for crap, but I'm just, I'm just going to hire you and hope it works out. And then bring you into my palace. <laughs> like, I, I'd While be like, I sleep. I'm like, where are the riches? I'd be like ripping that place off. Like, what is, I don't think uh, the old man brought us in here. What hey, four episodes to go. It could turn it around. So let's, let's see how it goes. All right. I just got time for a few more here, guys. Next up is Jonathan who writes, question. So when it comes to action, whether big budget like Avengers or small scale like John Wick, is there like a detailed choreography description in the script that directors go off or is it just Cap fights Iron Man and the director uh, fills in mm. the details? If it's the former, it must take real writing skills to map out in words how big action set pieces take place. So uh, I write. So whenever I write an action a film i'm visualizing it as if it's a movie and putting it into words it depends on the writer because i know kevin smith he likes to write action he likes to write it out I'll, but i've read many scripts that basically where it literally says fight ensues and then we'll give hallmarks at some point in the fight so and so has to grab this and then at some point in the fight this has to happen and i'll be honest with you i prefer that because it leaves the action choreography to people who know it best. And that's because I've read scripts that do both ways. Um, but I think quite a lot, like in, in the John Wick stuff, it kind of left it up to the choreographers. How have you seen it done? And which way do you think is the right way to go I, oh, about I think it? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, to me, the mark of a great screenwriter is like, for instance, you don't, you don't write long shot or close up or you don't put that in your scene descriptions um, because that's the director's and the cinematographer's job. What you do is you set the stage and you explain what's happening. But when it comes to a fight scene, you should explain not every single blow by blow element of it. Tell us what kind of a fight scene is. 
these two characters, you know, they stand each other down like Western gunfighters. And then a, then a, a fist fight explodes that, that could, be, could be described as a Mack truck, you know, meeting a, a canyon wall. So I don't know, whatever you're going to say, boom. And you allow, you make it fun to read. You just have to convey what kind of a fight it is. Is it, is it a knockdown drag out? Is it a one-sided fight? Is it an evenly matched fight? What does it mean? How does it feel? That's all you have to say. Let the choreographers, let the director, let the actors come up with it. That's their job. What you need to do is convey what kind of a fight it is. And like John said, if somebody, if there's a gun in this fight, or if there's some kind of a weapon or something like a sword that needs to be part of the action, you, you, tell, you say that, of course, but you keep it general. You convey the feeling of the fight yep. as opposed to the specifics of the fight. All right. Let's do a couple more here. Uh, Jonathan also writes, I'll try to be vague as possible in case No Way Home spoilers aren't allowed, but the line, you're all grown up. How are you? Gets uh, the tears rolling because it's like that character is talking to me since I haven't seen him since I was a boy. And the reply trying to do better. Man, every time I watch uh, No Way Home, that oh guys please check your spelling please 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 um uh, that little interaction sends me choking with tears i feel like i've come full circle and i'm now moving towards a uh, to a new chapter in life no way home embodies that for me you know i've never thought of it in those terms but that really is true because these are characters you're now seeing like when he says you know like how are you and whatever you're right they haven't seen each other since the last time we saw them together, which was so many years ago. And I can understand that probably for a lot of the younger viewers, like people who are 20 or younger, probably, I mean, that scene maybe meant nothing to them really. But for those of us older than that, we remember that. Because look, I know, I always get it with anybody who's like 25, 26 or older, they get it when I say, you got to understand, Raimi Spider-Man 2 for quite a while was maybe considered the greatest comic book movie ever made and is still in that conversation. And you, usually it's when viewers who are younger than that, it's like, what, that old Spider-Man? But, but you got to understand, that movie was so effing good. And to this day, and it holds up. That movie is so good. And so for those of us who remember watching that, to then see these characters together again and that kind of a line, like... You're all grown up and stuff like that. To see that line now, you can tell which people remember that movie and which people don't when you see the reactions in the theater, right? So, yeah, I get that emotional moment there because it had been a while. What was your reaction to that? Well, no, I, it was the same thing. I mean, that was what that movie, I think that's what the movie conveyed and brought to the fore is that it played on nostalgia in a very unique and interesting way that elicited emotion that a lot of movies can't do. And that's why some of those lines, you know, they really got to you. And that's why I think the movie is as, as successful as it is, is because we're feeling things. If you're a fan of the character, it's, it's, I mean, it's 20 years of, of memories, you know, that it's playing on. And that's amazing. All right, guys, last question we're going to do today. This comes to us also from Jonathan and Jonathan writes, uh, also, regarding writing action in scripts, holy shit, I can't imagine the level of imagination and stress of writing Endgame's third act battle. Holy cow, I, I, I would have a migraine if I wrote anything like that. Honestly? Really, though? I mean, 
he's writing, okay, the portal's open and the all the other heroes come through. I mean, I honestly, I think something smaller scale, like if you were going to try to write out the action, Rob, you were mentioning a little bit earlier the King's Man with Colin Firth and the church scene. Like to me, that would have been a much more mind-bending kind of really trying to think to orchestrate in your mind as you're writing it out than say the sequel. Because the, the, the thing about the action sequence in the third act of Endgame is that it's all milestone moments on your left. The portals open. Captain Marvel appears in the sky to takes out the ship above. I mean, I, I honestly, I think something even smaller, more intimate like that. I don't know. How do you see that? Well, you know, I think it's a combination the way that the Marvel movies are written. We know that a lot of these action scenes are developed even before the scripts are finished. So I think they've got their visual development team. There's a whole group of people that are doing paintings. They're doing um, and they're coming up with moments. And then um, the two writers then go in and go, OK, now we have sort of a sense of what this fight can be. And then they fill in, like you said, you called the milestone moments like we want a shot of where all four, like somebody will do a painting of all all the women characters in one shot because that was a cool moment. A lot of people hate that moment. but I love that moment. It's just a brief moment in a battle. And then they know, OK, we're going to have these characters take the Infinity Gauntlet and each of them is going to have their big moment. Well, that could have come out from the visual development team. Then the writers have to figure out, that's a great idea. How do we make that work within the context of this battle? And, you know, I remember in Lord of the Rings, when they were doing Two Towers, the battle with the Ents attacking Isengard, the tree, Treebeard, and his, his people attacking Isengard, yep. they didn't know what that was. They decided to put that in during the scoring sessions of the movie. And Peter Jackson actually went out throughout that idea to Weta Digital, and he asked those guys, okay, come up with different vignettes. Like, what, what do you think visually would happen in this battle? Different moments showing the Ents doing different things. So they did. They came up with these things and then they figured out how to structure it. So I think it's a combination. You know, a great writer doesn't have to figure all of those things out because it later becomes a collaboration between the, the director, the cinematographers, the effects team and the writers. All right. You know, I said that was the last one, but we will do the one more just because uh, Harry uh, Paratesticle writes. Jason Momoa shouldn't be too hurt that his marriage is ending. After all, there are plenty of other fish in the sea. Nope. Not even a drum hit for you, Harry. Not even a <laughs> drum hit. No ba-bum boom for you on that way. Anyway, guys, listen, there are more questions to come uh, from a bunch of you guys. Don't worry. Rob over here is going to be doing a companion video. You'll see that going up this evening. But for now, that'll do it. For today's episode of the John Campion Show, thank you so much, you guys, for being here. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. A big special thank you to all of you guys who sent in those comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved with the John Campion Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. I want to thank, of course, Ray, who's been there in the live chat with you guys. Ray, where can people follow you online if they want to? That's Ray Aura with a zero. Happy Martin Luther King Day. I know Everyone Ray's going to be, be safe. watching the uh, the Rams game tonight, looking for I'm that I'm going to be finishing trip. the Eternals, actually. Oh, that's in right. In my uh, five-part series. That... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what happens. It might be six. Who knows? And sitting across from me, of course, Robert Meyer Burnett. Robert, thank you for that excellent breakdown oh. of Moon Knight. That was awesome. Looking forward to seeing your companion video. Where can people follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BurnettRM. Find me on Instagram at uh, Robert Meyer Burnett. And by the way, that's true what John said. Dota, 
Dragon's Blood Season 2 drops on the 18th. I was the editor on that, and you can probably hear more about that on my YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. And of course, guys, you can follow me on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter. You can see it right there, simply at John Campia. So that'll do it for us for now, guys. Don't forget to come back and join us tomorrow. Of course, it'll be the three of us and Aaron Cummings uh, comes back. She'll, of course, have Joey Bishop I, with her. I, I won't be here tomorrow, Wednesday. Oh, that's right. Rob's not going to be here. To- Normally, Rob's here on Tuesdays and not on Wednesdays. This week, he will not be here tomorrow, but he will be here on Wednesday. Yes. That's right. I forgot. Thanks for pointing that out. Anyway, guys, we hope to see you tomorrow as well. That'll do it for us for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>